The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were, fill and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that even winds and waves obey you, that you are Lord over all of creation. Would you be our Lord today? May we know you in this story of Jonah. May we be convicted of our sin, and may we turn to you in faith for our salvation. We pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Throughout the months of June and July, we made our way through the life of Abraham in a series of sermons called Resting on Grace. If you were not here last weekend and you have not heard Jason's final sermon in that series, please download it and listen to it this week. It was fantastic. It was the best sermon I've heard from this pulpit in a long time. For the month of August, we are turning our attention to the ministry of Jonah in a series entitled Running from Grace. As you'll see, these two men present us with quite a contrast. While Abraham has been heralded as the father of our faith, Jonah is presented to us as a paragon of unfaithfulness. Jonah is an antitype of Abraham, an opposite, the kind of person we don't want to be. At the same time, however, he's not merely a caricature. He's a human being. And in his humanity, he's a lot like us. Over these next four weeks, we're going to explore Jonah's humanity, the way in which he relates to God, rebels against God, repents, obeys, and then allows himself to be overcome by anger. It's a fascinating book. It's not immediately clear whether it's written as history or perhaps as a parable. And scholars throughout the ages have disagreed. I'm convinced, though, that this is most likely a historical recording of something that actually happened. And one reason I believe that these were actual events is because we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that Jonah was a real person. We're introduced to him in 2 Kings chapter 14 as a prophet in the court of Jeroboam II, the king, during the 8th century B.C. Now, 100 years before Jeroboam II, Israel had been conquered by the nation of Assyria, and they had been turned into a vassal state. The Israelites had a small measure of independence under King Jeroboam, but they still paid taxes and owed allegiance to the Assyrians, who could be pretty cruel masters. At the heart of the Assyrian Empire was a large and bustling city called Nineveh. Now, all of this is important background to the opening lines of the book of Jonah. If you're not already there, you can find it on page 744 of the Red Bibles, and I hope you'll turn there with me. Verse 1 of Jonah, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, 
saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, we can safely assume that the word of the Lord had come to Jonah before. He was a prophet, after all. He knew God's voice. But he must have been stunned at what he heard this time. God was telling him to go into the heart of enemy territory hundreds of miles away in order to denounce their evil ways. So in some ways, what happens next is no surprise. As verse 3 explains, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So having heard the word of the Lord, Jonah turns tail and he runs in the opposite direction. Nineveh is to the northeast. Joppa is a port on the southwest coast of Israel. And Tarshish was about as far away as you could possibly get from Nineveh, most likely in Spain. Now what we aren't told at this point is why Jonah flees. The obvious reason would be that he's scared. The Assyrians were well known in the ancient world for their unusual brutality. So there are frescoes that have been discovered dating back to this time period that depict the Assyrian practice of putting large fish hooks through the mouths of captured enemies while leading them on forced marches into captivity. They were not nice people. Now Jonah would have had a right to be afraid. But we learn in chapter 4 that this is not the reason he runs. Jonah runs away not because he's scared of the Assyrians, but because he knows that God wants to save them from the judgment that they deserve. Jonah knows that he's being sent on a mission of mercy, and he resents it. He hates the Assyrians, and he wants nothing to do with God's grace toward them, so he takes off in the opposite direction. Now, the rest of the story of this chapter is familiar to us. Jonah's boat encounters a wild storm. The sailors try everything to save the ship before they figure out that Jonah is the cause of their distress. Eventually, they throw him overboard where he's swallowed by an enormous fish, and the storm comes to a complete and sudden end. Now, all of this happens in chapter 1. And it introduces us to a story that's unlike any other. And it's a story that has two competing storylines. One is the story of God's extraordinary grace shown to undeserving people. The other is the story of Jonah's disobedience and its disastrous consequences. This morning, our focus is going to be on Jonah's disobedience because that's the theme that dominates this first chapter. So there are four aspects to Jonah's disobedience that I want to reflect on. And each one teaches us something about the consequences of disobedience in our own lives. When we choose our way over God's, our will over his word. So the first is this, disobedience is absurd. Disobedience is absurd. So chapter one, if you read it carefully, you'll note that it's filled with irony. Irony is used as a literary tool to amplify humor by exposing the absurdity of a situation. And when it's effectively deployed, it makes us shake our heads and chuckle at the action of the characters involved. The irony of this story, it hits us immediately in verses 3 and 4. Three times in verse 3, we're told that Jonah flees from God to Tarshish. 
But in verse 4, we're told that God hurls a storm at him while he's on the run. The irony, of course, is that no, no matter how far you go, you can't run from God. The irony continues in verse 5, where we learn that the professional crew of experienced sailors are terrified by this storm, while the land-bound, inexperienced prophet sleeps below decks, oblivious to everything. Either Jonah doesn't know enough to be scared, or he doesn't care if he dies. The irony gets especially thick in verses 8 and following. The sailors figure out that Jonah's the cause of the storm. So they approach him with a battery of questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What did you do to bring this on us? Jonah replies, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Now the sailors are incredulous. What is this that you've done? They cry out. In other words, what are you thinking? If you know the God who made all things and you fear him as you claim, then why in the world would you try to run from him? Don't you realize you can't escape from a God like that? The ultimate irony, of course, is that by the end of the chapter, it's the pagan sailors who proved to be righteous. They call upon the Lord. They fear him. They offer a sacrifice. They make vows. While the prophet of the Lord is the one who's rebellious. Why all this irony? It's there to help us see that disobedience isn't just wrong. It's absurd. To disobey the living God is just plain stupid. So we make decisions every day, each one of us, that lead us into acts of disobedience. Some of these are practically instinctive. Others of them are much more deliberate. I wonder how many times have you told yourself, ah, it's not that big a deal, before doing something or saying something ungodly? How many times have you reasoned with yourself before giving into temptation, saying, ah, no one's going to get hurt, or no one's even going to know? We have an incredible ability to reason ourselves into sin, to convince ourselves that what we're doing even if we know it's wrong in God's eyes, is actually quite sensible for us and that in the end, we can always ask for forgiveness if we decide that we regret it. Now, to this logic, the sailors on the ship to Tarsus would say to us, what in the world are you thinking? Don't you know that you're dealing with the God who made everything? In what universe does it make sense to reject the guidance of the one who made you? The sailors understood that to disobey God or to ignore his word, his teaching, it's the equivalent of jumping off a 10-story building in hopes that maybe this time the law of gravity will be suspended. Now, we tend to think of obedience and disobedience to God as a difference between doing what's right and what's wrong. And that's true, but it's not complete. It's also the difference between doing what is smart and doing what is stupid. It's the difference between doing what's good for you and doing what's bad for you. So God has given us his word in Scripture in order to show us how to be human. He's told us not to lie, cheat, steal, and lust, not because he decided arbitrarily that these things are wrong, because these things destroy our humanity 
and they destroy the humanity of those around us. When we disobey, we're going against the grain of the universe. That's a pretty compelling reason for us to want to study God's Word and to listen to His voice so that we can live accordingly. But the sad truth is that most of us are comfortable living lives that don't make sense. We're comfortable saying that we believe in God while acting in a way that denies Him. Over the course of these next four chapters, we will discover that Jonah has a robust and well-informed understanding of God. He is thoroughly orthodox in his beliefs. He could sign a detailed statement of faith without reservation, but this didn't make him a good Jew or a godly man. It simply made his ungodliness all the more disturbing and destructive. This is really important for us to pay attention to. We at Holy Trinity, we are committed to Christian orthodoxy, to the authority of Scripture, and to the truth of the gospel. We aren't afraid of believing things that seem outmoded or ridiculous, but getting our doctrine right, it's not sufficient. We have to live it out. So if you say you believe in the authority of God's Word, but you're sleeping with your girlfriend or cheating on your taxes or gossiping about your neighbor, then your life it's a denial of your beliefs, and it's absurd. And the people around you will soon recognize the dissonance between the two, and they will assume that what you believe is simply absurd or essentially meaningless. Disobedience is absurd. And those who live in disobedience, in spite of knowing God's Word, end up living absurd lives. So that's the first thing we learn from this chapter. And the second thing is this. Disobedience damages our relationship with God. So look again at verse 3. Three times we're told that Jonah set off for Tarshish, and twice we're told that he did so in order to flee from the presence of God. Jonah was running away from God's mission, but more importantly, he was running away from God himself. I think that many of us think of our sin kind of like trash. It's a natural, though sometimes unavoidable, nasty byproduct of life. We can't help producing it. But God in His kindness has, preside, has provided us with a divine waste disposal system called confession and forgiveness. So once a day or once a week, we collect our sin into the trash can of confession and we take it out to the street for God to remove. We have this tendency to see our sin as extrinsic to us, somehow completely separable from who we are. It's just a byproduct of life to be disposed of in a sanitary manner. But that's not how sin works. God is not a public service provider. He's our sovereign creator and our gracious redeemer. And when we disobey him, we are actively rejecting him. We turn our back on him. And our relationship with him is damaged as a result. So think about the most important relationship in your life. It may be with your spouse or with your child or with a, dear, a very dear friend. Think about what happens when you ignore them or turn your back on them or reject them in some way. It profoundly damages the relationship. You cannot simply say, sorry, 
and expect everything to be immediately okay. Now, our relationship with God is different, of course. When Jonah rejected God, it did not harden God's heart toward Jonah, but it did harden Jonah's heart toward God. So notice that everyone else on the boat starts praying when the storm hits, except for Jonah. It's because he doesn't want to talk to God. He doesn't want a relationship with him. His disobedience hardened his heart and it damaged his relationship with the God who made him. Jonah's rebellion hardened his heart toward those around him as well, and ultimately toward himself. See, Jonah could have intervened as soon as the storm started, but instead he chose to put every man's life in danger. And then when push came to shove, Jonah finally told the sailors to throw him overboard, not because he thought God might save him, but because he wanted to die more than he wanted to live and obey. Once we stop listening to God and we strike out on our own, we lose our way, and we run the risk of losing ourselves entirely. That's a scary place to be. God chases Jonah down, and he saves him from himself, but there's no implicit promise that he will do the same for everyone. The Bible's filled with stories of God's people rebelling against him and suffering the consequences. The sons of Eli, King Saul, the entire generation of Israel that wandered the wilderness for 40 years, the scribes and the Pharisees who listened to Jesus' teaching every day. We cannot assume that God will send a fish to swallow us when we run away from him. Disobedience is absurd and it damages our relationship with God, putting us at risk of walking away from him for good. Our third observation is this, disobedience is destructive to those around us. Sin has consequences. It can destroy the course of our lives. It can destroy our witness to the gospel. It can destroy our relationship with God. But it can also be incredibly destructive to the people around us. Now, it may seem like a secondary detail, but it's important to notice that Jonah's disobedience is a complete disaster for every other man on board that ship. The cargo is entirely lost, and with it, their livelihoods. The ship is almost certainly damaged. Lives are put at stake. Men are injured, all because of one man's disobedience. Now, not every sin not everything wrong that we do does this kind of damage, but so much of our sin does far more damage than we are willing to admit or able to see. If you've ever watched a marriage torn apart by infidelity, you will have no trouble understanding what I mean. That kind of sin has a multi-generational impact on countless people. The spouse who's been cheated on, their children, the children of anyone else involved, friends who are forced to choose sides, in-laws and other relatives. I have spent too much time with young married couples struggling in their marriage because one of their fathers had an affair when they were a kid. Scripture tells us we bear the sin of our fathers to the third and fourth generation. It's true. Our sin causes untold damage. Disobedience is absurd. 
It damages our relationship with God, and it's destructive for those around us. Now, Jonah may be an extreme example, but I think those principles hold true for all of us. And they ought to make us stop and take stock of our attitude toward God and toward our sin. In light of these things, we need to ask, whew, do I take my sin seriously enough? Or do I downplay its significance so that I'm blind to its consequences? Now, we desperately need some good news at this point. And it comes in our fourth and final observation, which is this. Disobedience doesn't stop God. So the chapter ends with this completely unexpected act of grace. As Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea, God sends an enormous fish to swallow him. And we're told that God appointed the fish to do this. It's an oddly technical designation that emphasizes God's sovereign control over every piece of creation. And it's intended to make clear that this wasn't a random stroke of good luck for Jonah. It was God's miraculous intentional intervention. As far as we know, Jonah doesn't cry for help. He chooses to die rather than to obey, but God will not let him off that easily. He will not let Jonah's disobedience stand in the way of his grace. Now, the point is as simple as it is profound. Nothing you can do will ever disqualify you from the grace of God. Disobedience is absurd. It destroys our intimacy and our relationship with God. It's destructive of other relationships. But even that cannot ultimately stop God from saving you. Notice the final phrase in this first chapter. We're told that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Nearly 800 years later, in his lone reference to Jonah, Jesus tells the Pharisees that just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so he would spend three days and nights in the heart of the earth. It's a reference to his suffering and to his death. As God rescued Jonah through the miracle of the whale, so Jesus rescues us through his suffering, through his death, and through his resurrection. He dives down into the depths of sin and death, taking on himself the consequences of our disobedience, and he saves us from ourselves. This first chapter of Jonah should do two things to us. It should cause us to sit up and take stock of our attitude toward our own sin. Let it be a warning against self-justification and complacency. It should also cause our jaws to drop at the extraordinary lengths to which God will go to save us from ourselves. Let it lead you to repentance and to worship. I'm going to take a moment just to be quiet before the Lord. I encourage you to, to sit with these things, and then I'll close us in prayer.
Lord God, it is so much easier for us not to take our sin seriously. Not to consider the damage it causes, uh, the relationships it destroys. Not to consider the way in which it hardens our hearts toward you. Would you give us tender hearts to take stock honestly, to be aware, to confess, to repent, to submit to you, that our lives might be orderly and honoring to you rather than absurd. And Lord, as we do, may we understand the depth of your love shown to us in our Lord Jesus who swam down into the depths of our sin and disobedience to rescue us, to save us through his own death and resurrection. We marvel that nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop your grace. May we be found by you today. May we rest in your grace and rise to give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.